Now, it's interesting the tack he's taking with this woman because Samaritans had a counterpart to the Jewish Messiah. They had their own Messiah figure. They called him the Tahib. And the Tahib was described by a phrase that they borrowed from Numbers 24-7, which reads, and I quote, speaking of the real Messiah Jesus, water will flow from his buckets and his seed will be by many waters. So this language of a Messiah figure, the Tahib for a Samaritan woman, bringing living water that leads up to eternal life is quite alluring and speaks to her heart. And so she hears his words. I think her heart is beginning to turn. I don't know exactly when it completely turns, but I think this is slow process. And as with Nicodemus, Jesus uses natural, simple, safe, easy to understand things and translates them into supernatural spiritual lessons. No water, no water, no wonder John later describes Jesus as having, Revelation 1.15, a voice like the sound of many waters. There's just something refreshing about Jesus. And, as we'll get to in a few chapters in a parallel statement, Jesus says, John 7.37, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. John 7.38, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I'll tell you when that makes great sense to me. In the middle of the night, when the Zyrtec from the primary from the previous morning wakes me up with a mouth that is so dry it's nuts. Imagine taking a mouthful of peanuts, chewing them all up, and spitting them out. That's how dry my mouth was last night. I mean, it's about three o'clock in the morning. I wake up and I'm like, <laughs> I'm getting up. Cheryl's like, "Where are you going? Gotta get water." Hey, what? John 4 and 7, that's where I'm going right now. (laughs) Life dries us out, doesn't it? The weariness of it, it dries us out. Jesus says, just come to me and drink. Be with me and I am fresh. I am living. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Jesus quenches the thirst. It's like Kramer. These pretzels are making me thirsty. Those of you Seinfeld fans. Jesus says, come to me and drink. But you know, He offers fresh water, living water, salvation, grace. He offers that first. But (laughs) forgive me, He just couldn't leave well enough alone. (laughs) Verse 16. (laughs) He said to her, go call your husband and come here. Oh, Jesus. It was so good. You know, the liberal grace-only folks would be like, wrong, wrong, wrong. Stop with the water. Just leave it at grace. Let it hang out there with grace and love and universal everything. Don't take us into the place of the husband. This is where the mess comes in. Exactly. Remember what I said. Grace first. But he still is going to deal with sin. He still doesn't leave it alone. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. I'm sure she did it like that. I'm sure she was looking away. I have no husband. As I've told you before, like my kids when I catch them doing something wrong, especially Naomi, she just kills me. All I want to do is laugh. 
Naomi, did you do this? No. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> she says, I have no husband. She was right. And in fact, Jesus says, okay, you have correctly said I have no husband. She's like, Whew. I'm off the hook. Verse 18. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. You spoke truly. (laughs) He's the best. I mean, who has the kind of grace and guts that Jesus has? And I love it because, you know, she, she, well, number six in our listing here, she withholds information, which is lying, by the way. She is being untruthful. I have no husband. And Jesus is just so good. I know that. And you've spoken truly. I mean, honestly, you're right. You don't. What's he doing here? Well, he is entering the place of her greatest thirst. A thirst for a real relationship. A thirst for a relationship that actually works. A thirst for a place of security and safety. A place where she can be loved and, and cared for. Why is she not married now? Is she just a, you know, skanky? Charlie had a whole conversation last week about whether or not skanky was appropriate to say in a sermon. I just did. <laughs> I can see tonight. I go home. Cheryl says, did you use skanky in the sermon tonight? No. She is thirsting for real relationships. She, you know, someone might say, well, you know, be fair, Rick. I mean, maybe, maybe she had five husbands and all five of them passed away and the guy she's with now, you know, is a brother or something. Come on. And Jesus is pointing this out. Now, don't judge her too quickly. Because it is human nature to avoid the painful truths of our lives. And she does not want to talk about it. This is why I think she's at the well alone. Because as the other women are talking about their husbands and their children and their lives and everything going the way it's supposed to go, she's just not going to sit there and listen to that. And she's not going to sit there and have them look at her knowing what her life is really like. Rick, you're reading into this. I know, but gang, five husbands and now she's living with a guy. She's shacking up. Because it's never worked for her. And that's why in this moment Jesus goes to that place because now he's dealing... See, he's gone from, I'll give you a drink, I'm the guy who can provide, to I want to give you grace, eternal salvation, to I want to get as practical as possible. You see, this salvation is for more than down the line. It's for right now. It's for your thirst today. But we don't like to talk about the painful truths. Have you seen the commercial? Interesting commercial. I think very well done. It says, it's, it's someone standing there, and there have been several stars who have done it. Mariska Hargitay, Hilary Swank, Chris Carter. They've stood there looking at the, just a white wall behind them, staring at the camera. Tears in their eyes. Trying to say something. And the commercial ends with the line, some things are hard to talk about. And it's dealing with domestic abuse and violence. Some things are hard to talk about. You want to know what the hardest thing is to talk about? My own sin. I don't want to talk about my sin. 
I don't want you to know about my sin. But I don't want to deal with it. Because it scares me. If you knew, if they knew, Lord, what I struggle with, guarantee if you knew everything that was in my sick, twisted little head, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. (laughs) I don't want to talk about my sin. Neither do you. Who does? So why does Jesus have to go there? Because we have to talk about it. We have to. It's the only way we can come around to understand. Keep your finger there. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. Verse 13. The Hebrew writer, I think it's Paul, says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You ain't hide nothing. I don't want to talk about it. It doesn't matter. And this is what this woman, by the way, just found out. I have no husband. You're right. You don't. You had five. And you're living with a man right now. He knows. He already knows. He didn't even have to ask her. The the reason he asked her is because she needed to say it. But like all of us, she doesn't want to talk about it. Why does everything have to be open and laid bare before God? Why? Gang, understand, it is not to shame us. It is to sanctify us. God doesn't want to humiliate. He wants to consecrate. And listen to the context. This is why I had you turn to... Hebrews 4.13. Listen to the context of it. Therefore, therefore, since everything about us is laid open before God, since He knows it all, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Confession is good for the soul. Confession is good for the spirit. What is our confession that we have to hold fast to? Christ is my Savior. That's my confession. I confess to you right now, there is one reason why I'm allowed to teach the Bible for a living, because Christ is my Savior. Because I have confessed Him, and He has washed away my sin, I need Jesus. Desperately, that's my confession. Let us hold fast our confession, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. He knows what it's like. He understands a woman who's gone through five marriages, failed, and now is living with a guy. He gets it. He understands a man who struggles with different things. Pornography or or drinking or, or, I don't know, anger issues, whatever. He gets it. He put on flesh. He dwelt among us. He knows what it's like. Tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Verse 16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of works. No. 
to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How in the world do we stand before the throne of God in all His grace and mercy? I get that He is gracious and merciful. How in the world do I stand there holding fast my confession? I need Jesus. And when I stand before the Lord, when He calls me home in that day, when He says, Rick, what do you have to say for yourself? I'm going to go stand behind Jesus and just point at Him. (laughs) I confess Jesus. I have a need. Go back to John. Do you see that confession here, it allows the Lord to draw out the toxic stagnation of sin in my spirit. And that's this woman. Stagnant in life. She is in a bad place. She is stuck there. No relationship with a man has ever worked. She's like stagnant water. Or worse yet, she is like completely dried out. She's probably given up on all relationships in general. But Jesus, who is full of grace and truth, grace Here's living water and truth. Let's deal with this relationship issue. He tenderly exposes the truth. He understands. He knows sin is hard to talk about, but He knows we need to. That's why the Bible calls us to confess our sin. We need to get the stagnant out. Get back to that fresh, flowing water. Now, He's got her right on the verge of salvation. Right there. So very close And she changes the subject, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. How quickly do we turn to argue theology instead of owning up to dry throats? Have you ever noticed that when you start to talk Jesus to someone, how quickly they want to argue about the pygmies? Serious, my, my great-grandmother on my, on my wife's side of the family, lovely woman, and she is, I adore her. Her big question is always, well, what about the pygmies? What do you mean, what about the pygmies? Well, who's going to save them? What's your theology for that? Well, just a second ago, we were not talking about the pygmies, we were talking about you, Grandma. <laughs> Which is why you want to talk about the pygmies. People jump to theology. Well, can God make a rock so big that He can't lift it? That's just dumb. I mean, that's just... Really? You you really want to engage in that mental exercise? Did Adam have a belly button? I love that one. What do you think he had? A zipper? I don't know. Evolution, this, you know, Big Bang, that. People jump to talk about theology and religion. And it always happens right when you're getting close. So don't back down. Take them back to Jesus. It's always that moment where they're starting to crack. Where the water's starting to get into the dryness. And they go, oh, okay, no, 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 no. Here's the problem with you Christians. And off they go. There was this, as we've already talked about, and it's the reason I started there, this big denominational argument between Samaritans and Jews. You people say this. Well, our people say this. 
It's the most typical go-to dodge in the book. Instead of dealing with personal sensitive sin issues, let's talk about Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim. (laughs) Now, she thinks it'll put him off, but Jesus, ever the gentleman, I love this, just goes, oh, okay, we can talk about that. You want to talk about that? He said to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, number seven in your notes as you're tracking this through, Jesus welcomes the conversation of worship. She thinks she's sidestepping. Jesus is a good dancer. And he sidesteps with her. All right, let's talk about worship them. Ma'am, you have a geography problem. It's not Gerizim. It's not the shoulder of Shechem. And it's not Jerusalem. That is not the issue. It is not about where you worship. It is about who you worship. And you can worship a rock in Jerusalem and it will do you no good. You can worship on Mount Gerizim and it's not going to matter. You can be on Mount Zion or you can be on Mount Baker and worship a ski and it's not going to make any difference. We joke about Israel being a local call. You know, if you want to pray, it's a great place to pray because it's a local call. You don't have to pay long distance charges for your prayer. You all understand this. You are as close to Jesus as you can possibly be right now in this life. You can't get any closer. Because Jesus said, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I'm there in their midst. Did you know he was here tonight? Of course he was. He is so immediate. And worship, and this is where Jesus is going. Hey, worship is not up there or over there. Worship is anytime, any place, immediate when you turn your heart to the Father. William Cowper, the 18th century poet, once wrote, Jesus, where'er thy people meet, there they behold thy mercy seat. Where'er they seek thee, thou art found, and every place is hallowed ground. Be it the concrete of this new building or the concrete of the barn, guess what? Do you, you know he's not over there. Well, he is if two or three of you go over there. But Jesus isn't sitting in the barn tonight going, where are those guys? <laughs> I just, we were here for like ten and a half years. And all, I, are they going to be back, Father? I don't know. I mean, how silly is that? Oh, well, this place just doesn't feel like the barn. Well, that's feelings. Sorry. You know what? You could be in a ditch, and if your heart turns to the Lord to worship, He's there. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Worshiping worshiping up a storm, having a grand old time. If they had sent someone to pick him up that day, they would have thought he was nuts. In there saying, praise is rising, hearts are, my heart is turning to you. I mean, he would have been in, you know. Because anywhere you are, when your heart turns to the Lord, is worship. Now before explaining worship more fully, he corrects another theological issue that she has in verse 22. 
your worship, or you worship, he says, what you do not know. That's serious. You worship what you do not know. Listen, if you are not worshiping Jesus, you don't realize what you're worshiping. And that goes for every religion on the face of the earth today. If the worship is not of Jesus, what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians is it is a worship of demons. You worship what you don't know, Jesus says. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Here is the correction to her misguided theology. Jesus is not generically embracing the Samaritan view of God. And we need to understand that. He doesn't say, call me Tahib. I mean, the Jews call me Messiah, Mashiach, you know, in the Hebrew. But I'm I'm Tahib. I mean, I'm the same guy. Mashiach, Tahib, potato, potato, whatever. You want to call me. Call me Isha. That's cool. Or call me Allah. You know, same God, just different names. That's not how Jesus rolls. Never once in the Hebrew Scriptures does God say, hey, just call me Baal. That's okay. It's just a different name for the same God. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Jesus goes straight down the line of Jacob through Judah to the one and only Messiah. He says, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. you got to get this, lady. I know you're a Samaritan, but salvation does not come through Samaritans. It comes direct down the bloodline, yes, of your forefather Jacob, who you so obviously mentioned earlier. This is his will. I get it. Your forefather Jacob had a son named Judah, who down the line had a son named David, who down the line had a son named Jesus, and here I am. And that's where salvation comes. From the Jews. To the one and only Messiah, who is not... From any other line, though he is Messiah for anyone who will receive him. Romans 9 verse 4. Paul's talking about Israel and he says, To whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, and the service and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. Like him or not, and I do... Salvation is from the Jews. So remember that when you think about the people of Israel. We owe them a great debt. It is not you who supports the root. It is the root who supports you. The root, by the way, is Jesus, who is the root of Jesse, of the line of Judah. Why does all that matter so much? Because Messiah was not a Samaritan. Messiah was not an Arab. Nor is he British. I know if you've seen Jesus of Nazareth, he sounds British. That old movie. Messiah is not African. He is not Asian. He is not American. Far too many Jesus movies have been made with a blue-haired, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, blonde-haired surfer dude. Yo, sup? You know, I mean, (laughs) Messiah was a Jew. That's the deal. Messiah was a Jew, and the field of the world's Messiah is extremely narrow. 
It comes down to one man of one lineage at one point in time with one name, Yeshua. Amen. Jesus. Jesus in the Greek. Same name. One name. And Peter and John said in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. He needed her to understand this. She needed to understand that there wasn't going to be some Tahib, a Samaritan Messiah. He is the Messiah. This is where he's leading her. Remember, he is very gently, very spiritually, taking her down this road out of dryness and into the quenching of her greatest thirst. And then Jesus hints at the tearing of the veil. Verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is. I like that. It's coming. It's going to be even greater than you can imagine, but it's already here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now listen, I know we're, we're over the hour. Listen real quickly. Three things you got to know about what this means. What's He talking about here? About worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. Three things. Number one, true worship favors the Father. True worship favors the Father. He has already said to her, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The Father, the Father, the Father. Jesus was absolutely revolutionary in His personalization of God. In the way He talked about God. Here comes this rabbi who didn't say God is like a father. God is as a father. He was always seen as a father to Israel. Jesus is the first one to come along and personalize it and call Him Father. You won't find that before Jesus. Yes, God is referred to like a father. The picture of a father. But Jesus says, I come from the Father. I love the Father. The Father loves the Son. Jesus invited His apostles. They said, how do we pray? very first thing He said is, Our Father... Who art in heaven? Hallowed be your name. Well, that's that's great. We're so used to it, gang. Father, you know, we go right into our prayer. We're not even thinking about what we're saying. But for a Jew who would normally say Lord or Hashem, but Father, that is so personal. And Jesus will use the term for God 65 times in the Synoptic Gospels and over 100 times in the Gospel of John. Father, Father, Father. Usually He uses the Greek word pater, which is just a very nice Greek kid, pater, just like we would say papa. But three times, the most personal, vulnerable word in the Hebrew is used, Abba, Daddy. I've told you before, it's the word we hear little Jewish kids, three, four, five years old, running through the streets of Jerusalem call out. I've heard it so many times. I love it. Abba! 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 They're running along looking for... Abba! Daddy! There's nothing religious in the way they say it. It's just, where's Daddy? It took a while. Dave and Naomi and Anna Marie, when they came home, it took a while for them to call me Dad. They do now. And it is my favorite thing in the world, especially when David and Naomi say it. Daddy, I just... Oh. <laughs> I'll give you anything. What do you want? 
You want a raise in your allowance? You got it. You know. You want another donut? Fine. We'll go get. We'll go get donuts. I don't care if Monica Daly doesn't like it. We're gonna go get donuts. Don't tell her I said that, Jim. Okay. And you kids. Father, Abba, Mark 14.36, in his most vulnerable state in all of his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus doesn't cry out, Lord, high, grand, majestic one. He says, Abba, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba. And Jesus taught his disciples to call God Abba. Father, Pater. Paul comes along in Romans 8.15 and says, You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Galatians 4.6 Because you are sons. And by the way, ladies, don't let the word sons bother you. The word sons in Scripture, huios, is the word. It means inheritor. It's not just a boy thing. We are inheritors of the Lord. We have an inheritance adopted in receiving full inheritance. We us. It's the only word that John will use for Jesus. And he doesn't use that word for us in John's gospel. He only uses the word for children of God. For us. But later in other places in the New Testament, we us, sons. God, Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, so here's Jesus, Spirit within me, crying out, Abba, Father. It's personal. It's close. It's loving. And note, John ten thirty, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. When we worship, we worship Him as Father. Should I pray to Jesus or should I pray to the Father? Yes. Because that's who we're worshiping. I and the Father are one. He is my Abba. He is my Pater. He is my Daddy. I know that bothers some people. Even today in, in the church, calling Him Daddy, I don't know. <laughs> it's a little too casual. It's too comfortable. It's, it's too what? Close? What does referring to God as Father do to your heart? I mean, that just, it alters my entire language of prayer when I start out. And when, and when I'm thinking, when I'm honestly thinking of Him as my Daddy, as my, as my Father, my prayer suddenly comes from this high holy place down to just a, a child who loves his parent. Father. And Jesus starts there. True worship favors the Father. Now I know that there are some who will say, I had a lousy father. My father was abusive. My father was cold. My father was mean. I don't understand what it even means to have a good father. And I would say to you, then come to the father you've always longed for. Because that's who he is. He is the ideal dad. And I don't care what... I mean, I care, but it doesn't matter what your background has been in terms of parentage. The reality is, every human being has this sense in our brains that there is the ideal out there. God is the ideal daddy. 
He is the daddy you've longed for. He's the daddy we desire. He's the daddy we want. And whether you had a good dad or a horrible dad on earth doesn't make a difference. God still says, call me father. Let me be the dad. Let's be that close. Worship favors the father. Secondly, true worship is shared in spirit. Shared in spirit. What exactly does that mean? Because if you, like me, read that, over the years I've just read spirit and truth. You know, it's just this kind of esoteric, spiritual, got to worship in spirit and truth. Does that mean I raise my hands? What does that mean? Does it mean I close my eyes and rock back and forth? Is that spirit and truth? I'm in the spirit, you know. We got the spirit! Hey, yes we do! What does it mean to worship in spirit? To share in spirit. Listen, it means to get real. Just get real. Huh? When Jesus says, worshipers will worship in spirit, He is talking about the most real you can possibly get. Because to worship in spirit means to go to my heart of hearts and to worship from there. To worship not from out here, not from my flesh, not from how I look to you or anyone else, or how I want to present myself. That's worship with the mask, man. But to worship in spirit is to get real. It's like, there's no pretense in the spirit. It's just real. I am who I am in in the spirit. Whoa, did you hear that? That's what God said, isn't it? I am who I am. God is 100% pure spirit. You can't get more genuine than that. It doesn't get more real than that. And we use that phrase in our in our vernacular, the heart of hearts. My heart of hearts. That's where I am most real, most honest, most genuine. And Jesus says, worship there. In all honesty. In all realness. No games. No phony flattery. No fawning. No groveling. No bootlicking. That is not worship. Worship is genuine in the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, listen to this, the Lord is Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Why? Because there's nothing to pretend. There are no games. I don't have to look anything other than just, here I am, Lord. There is zero pretense when you worship in the Spirit. And that's what God's looking for. And I was thinking about that during worship tonight. I was thinking about worship in the Spirit. What is that? That's when I'm all alone in my car and the worship song comes on that I love and I crank it and I'm singing at the top of my lungs and I don't notice all the other drivers going... (laughs) I have no idea anyone's even watching. That's worship in Spirit. There's nothing going on out here that anybody can see. By the way, that's part of the reason we turn the lights down when we worship. Just to try and take the focus off ourselves so we can just think about and look at and be real with the Lord. Worship the Father. Worship favors the Father. Worship is shared in spirit. And thirdly, true worship is tendered in the truth. Worship in spirit and truth. It doesn't take place in a trance. 
Worship is not some kind of fused, drugged, ecstatic state where you wake up a half hour later and go, wow, that was awesome. What happened? I don't know, but it was cool. I was just worshiping, man. I was out there. No. True worship, gang, is true. It's honest. It's insightful. It's intelligent. It's informed. Psalm 51.6 David in writing that great confession says Behold you desire truth in the innermost being that would be my spirit and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. No wonder three times in John 14, John 15 and John 16 Jesus refers to the spirit of truth. Our worship should be intelligent. Not blind and wild and out of control. It's informed by His truth. By His very nature, John 14, 6, I am the truth, Jesus says. So we worship the Father because worship favors the Father. And we worship in spirit because that's where true worship is honestly, genuinely shared. And our worship is tendered. It's given to the Father in all truth. It's, it's intelligent. It's smart. It's not dumb. In verse 23, he says again, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And then the woman says, and we're going to stop right after this, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When that one comes, He will declare all things to us. You know what she just came to? Same place Nicodemus was where he says, You must be sent from God. Now she is seeking Him. And it's all because Jesus danced so beautifully with her for this whole conversation. Led her gently and tenderly right down to the place where she's saying, Now wait, now wait. I, I know... I know Mashiach is coming. She even uses the Hebrew word Mashiach, which John then translated Christos in the Greek. I know He's coming. And He will declare all things to us. And for the first time in Jesus' public ministry, alone with this woman at the well just outside of Sychar, in the heat of the day, Jesus willingly reveals His true nature. Not to Nicodemus, Nicodemus is still working it out right now. And Jesus knows he needs to. Jesus knows he's got 1,500 years of religion working against him, so Nicodemus is going to need some time. You know, to think it through. But to this weary woman, weary at the well, Jesus openly and blatantly reveals, I who speak to you am He. He confesses that he is Messiah. He will still, he hasn't even told his disciples this. He knows Peter will blurt it out somewhere. (laughs) He hasn't said it to anyone else, just to her. As we finish, gang, this is the woman who had been with five husbands and now is with a sixth man and none of them worked out until she met the seventh man, Jesus Christ. And He reveals Himself to her as He has to you 
And to me, Revelation 21.6, He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Amen. Jesus, Abba, Father, Spirit of the living God, we bow before You tonight in spirit and in truth. We come worshiping You Honestly. And we do, or with nothing to hide. You look into every one of our hearts, and while we can't see each other, we know we are open and laid bare before You. You see it all. And so we come praying that You will draw out the stagnant and the toxic and the poisonous and the sinful. Just keep drawing it out, Father. Because that stuff, Lord, it just dries us out. Jesus, You make us thirsty. And You alone can quench the thirst. We come praying, yes, for more of the outpouring of living water. We come, Father, asking that You will expand our vessels to be able to hold this well of of living water springing up to eternal life. We are just... We are so thankful that our gracious God is as personal... Jesus, as you get, thank you for getting personal with the woman, loving her so much that you would do that, even to the point of self-revelation. And we ask, Lord, we come bowing, saying, be personal with us. Draw us near, Abba. Father, there there are ladies among us tonight who desperately need the seventh man who just need your embrace, your gentleness, your tenderness, your meekness, your kindness, your love, who need to feel you wrap your arms around them. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would tonight. There are men among us tonight who need a daddy. Men who are still trying to live up to their father's approval and just need to cry out, Abba. And I come praying that you would be a daddy to those of us guys who need to hear our Father's heart. Father, we thank you for your word. (laughs) There's more to this story. We'll come back to it. But Lord, for revealing who you are to us here tonight, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you in spirit and in truth. In the most precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.